If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, I'd invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark in chapter 1. We'll be looking at what is our eighth sermon in the sermon series going through the Gospel of Mark, uh, beginning in verse 23. Mark chapter 1, verse 23. And we read verses 23 through 28 last week, but I want to revisit those. And then the bulk of our sermon this morning will come from 29 through 34. But Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 23. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. And immediately, after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand. And the fever left her, and she waited on them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that... Your own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has told us in His great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, that every jot and tittle is from You. Lord, that is to say that every part of every letter, of every word, of every verse, of every chapter, of every book of this Bible is spoken and inspired by You. And Father, we thank You for that. We thank You that You have preserved this Word, that You have given it down from generation to generation, that we have it now before us, that we might know more of Your Son. Lord, would You help us to treat this Word seriously? To approach it with great honor and great respect. Even as we pray that You would, by its power, change us to be more like Your Son, the Lord Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In the year 1877, the 18th President of the United States, Ulysses S. Grant, first tried his hand at the game of golf. He took several swings, missing the ball every time. Entirely missing the ball. And he gave his uh, golf club back to his caddy and said, I see that this sport entails much exercise, but I failed to see the point in having a ball. Because Grant had missed the ball every time, he failed to see the point of the ball. Why have a ball if you're not going to use it? Why have a ball if you're going to miss it every time? That was Grant's question. He was swinging and missing. And oftentimes, this is what we do with stories in the Bible, particularly with narratives in the Bible, because they're difficult for us to read and follow at some times. Because what is given to us as a narrative is not necessarily given to us as a regulative. In other words, what happens in the Bible is not necessarily what's going to happen 
in the everyday life of the believer. It's not necessarily what we're going to see take place each and every day. And so narratives are difficult. Oftentimes we're like the 18th president of the United States missing entirely the point of the text. And I want to be careful this morning to slow down and look at these verses together so that we don't miss the point. I would submit to us this morning that one of the points that we often see to do, see in our life, is what God is doing in our suffering. We often fail to see what God is doing in our suffering. Sometimes we hear false teachers rise up and say that it is always God's will to heal us. It is always God's will to bring about healing in the body. But if that were the case, then no one would ever die. If it were always God's will to bring about healing in the flesh, in the body, on this side of glory, then no one would ever die. But that sort of teaching is so, it's such a failed view of eternity. We fail to see that eternity is what matters. We fail to focus our eyes on glory, on heaven, and on Christ. And instead focus only on how we feel in the body now. But here we see stories of Jesus bringing about healing, of Jesus casting out demons, and if we're not careful, we'll miss the point. The first thing I want to look at this morning is a reminder of His sovereignty. Look with me again at verses 23 through 28. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So in those first two verses, again, verses that we looked at last week, we see what James talks about in his epistle, that even the demons know and shudder at the existence of God. Even the demons understand that Jesus is who He says He is. And if you'll turn back with me to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Again, I've said it time and time again throughout these sermons thus far in the book of Mark that the purpose of Mark's Gospel is to tell us that Jesus is who He says He is. The purpose of Mark's Gospel is to reveal to us that Jesus is God, that He is the very Son of God, come down as Emmanuel, God with us. And here, even the demons understand that Jesus is who He says He is. They say here in verse 24, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? So the first thing they understand is that He has authority over them. They understand that He is the sovereign King, that He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. The demons understood that. And then they say, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demons understood who Jesus was. Verse 25. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. Verse 27. They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. In verse 27, immediately after they witness what Jesus has within himself, namely the authority of God, they're all amazed. This word in the original language, in the Greek language of the New Testament, is thalmazo. It is to say they were astonished, they were amazed, they were besides themselves. They didn't have words to, to describe what they had just seen and heard from the Lord Jesus. No one and nothing compared to Jesus. Again, if we were to sum up these verses, they could be summed up in this one sentence, there's nobody like Jesus. There is nobody like Jesus. And here, these people were amazed 
at what they saw and they debate among themselves, what is this? Maybe this is your first time at church. Maybe this is your first time ever sitting under the Word of God and you're thinking, what is this? What is this all about? What in the world are we doing here? Why do these people gather here every week? What's the purpose of all of this music that we're led in singing? What's the purpose of this praying that we're talking about? What is the point of all of this? They answer the question themselves. What is this? A new teaching with authority. They understood. They, they were asking a, a question that they themselves knew the answer to. What is this? This is something unlike anything we've ever seen before. And if you have never been to church before, if you've never opened up God's Word before, then you might be asking yourself, what is this? I'll tell you what it is. The Word of God is the revelation of who God is. The Word of God is telling us who God is. The Word of God tells us about who He is and what He has come to do on our behalf. Here in these first verses, we see a reminder of His sovereignty. We see that, again, going back to verses 23 through 28, we see that there was an unclean spirit and that Jesus calls this unclean spirit out of this man. And just as a sort of a side note, a born-again believer cannot be possessed by a demon. This man was possessed by a demon, and he had this demon cast out of him. But to be possessed by something is to belong to it, to be overtaken by it, to be indwelt by it. But true believers are not indwelt by the devil. They are not overtaken or belonging to the devil or his demons. We, who are truly Christians, who are truly bought by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, for example, tells us this. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And finally, Romans 11 says, but if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And these three verses that I read are just a sample of at least 16 passages, Old and New Testament, that speak of the Holy Spirit's indwelling within the believer. All of this is to say that this person here in Mark chapter 1, verses 23 through 28, is not a believer. He is not someone who has just gone astray. He is not someone who has let the devil into his life a little bit. He was an active and obedient follower of Satan. We see that he was demon-possessed, that he was possessed, verse 23, with an unclean spirit. And now, if you know anything about the biblical context of their history and their way of life, this person would literally have to go through town crying out, unclean, unclean. He would literally have to let everyone know about his uncleanness. He would have to tell everyone about who he is. To see such a one as this would be a frightful scene. The people who were gathered there would have almost certainly been in terror. Imagine this morning that someone walks through the doors of the church and begins screaming. They begin screaming, unclean, unclean. And they begin screaming at us and cursing profanities. And they're shaking their fists saying, I have nothing to do with you. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy me? What are you doing here? 
Imagine that that happened this morning. Now I would say for most of us, myself included, if that happened, we're probably looking for the nearest exit just in case things go wrong. These people who were gathered here were very likely fearful of this man. But along came Jesus. And Jesus cast out this demon from this man. And what we see in that, what we see in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ in this scene, in this story, is that there is no power in heaven, earth, or hell that is beyond the authority of our great God. Even the demons obey. Even the winds and the seas obey. And that is why in verse 27, they are amazed at what Jesus can do. In Romans chapter 9, verse 15, Paul says of God that he told Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and compassion upon whom I will have compassion. In other words, what we see here is really God's elective purposes. What we see here is that God is healing this person. He is casting out this demon for the purpose of displaying His own glory by and through what He has done in this person. In other words, when God chooses to heal someone, the purpose of that healing is to show His divine power. So if God does not bring healing, it is not because God has failed. It is not because the sickness has overtaken God and the sickness is too powerful for God to cast out. But it is because God has divinely chosen not to bring about healing in those situations. Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If God heals us while we are on this earth, He has chosen to do so or elected to do so because He has a divine purpose for you. He is using your story as a testimony of His goodness. If He chooses not to heal, He is doing so to bring you home to eternal glory with Him. If you are in Christ, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And gain is to have more of something that you already have. And so Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live as Christ. As long as I'm on this side of glory, as long as I'm on earth, as long as I'm here, I'm going to live my life for the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to live my life saying, Jesus has bought me, He has sought me, I am here because of Him. Every breath that I take is because He has given me that breath. It is because He has blessed me with a new day to live. And so I'm going to live for Him. If we were to read this in the original language, that word is wouldn't be there. So it would literally say, for me to live, Christ. For me to live, it's all about Him. It is all about Jesus. But to die is gain. So if God does not bring about healing on this side of glory, then that's just bringing me home to have more of Jesus. That's just bringing me home to that land about which we sang this morning. There's an old song that says, if I go or if I stay, I'm a winner either way. If I go or if I stay, I'm a winner either way. We can trust that God does nothing arbitrarily or capriciously, that nothing happens randomly or by luck or chance, 
but by providence, by sovereign arrangement, by God's own hand and for God's own purposes. And here, He heals people in these stories that we see. He heals them and brings about healing within their body so that they can be a testimony of His goodness. We often fail to see what God is doing in our suffering. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, it says that we know that all things work together for the good of those who love Him. All things work together for the good of those who love Him. So whether it's that you're sitting in a hospital bed or whether it's that you finally got the job you've been begging God to give you, all of those things are working together for your good. It's doing something. It's not meaningless. It's not pointless. God is doing something even in our suffering. And if we fail to see what He's doing, we'll fail to deal well with the suffering that we're guaranteed in this life. But here's a narrative, here's a story in Scripture that tells us a little bit about what God is doing with our suffering, a little bit about what God does when He heals us. And we see that in verse 27, they were all amazed so that they debated among themselves saying, what is this? And in verse 28, immediately, again, note that word that's used 39 times in this 16 chapter gospel, immediately. There's a sense of urgency about this. There's a sense of immediacy. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. What happens here is that God in Christ meets with these people. And when he shows up on the scene, everyone has something to tell somebody about. If you're a believer in Christ, if you're someone who has been saved, who has been made entirely new by his great grace, you should be telling someone about what He's done for you. There should be a sense of urgency about let me tell you what my God can do. Let me tell you about this God who has come in the flesh. Let me tell you about this God who nobody compares to. There's nobody like Jesus. Can I just tell you about that this morning? That should be the sense of urgency that we have about our life. Not that we're waiting until tomorrow. Not that we're waiting for a more opportune time or when it's more comfortable for us to tell people about Jesus. But we should be telling people about Jesus now because now, today is the day of salvation. Immediately the news spread about him everywhere and all the surrounding district of Galilee. Everybody who was here on the scene understood that there's nobody like Jesus and they could not wait to tell somebody about this Lord. I wonder this morning if you're here and you've grown cold. You've grown calloused. You've become like the church at Laodicea who is lukewarm who's dancing between two opinions, who has a little bit of Jesus, but a little bit of the world? Or is that fire still burning within you that you cannot wait to tell somebody about what your God can do? About how good our God is. I pray that we would have a sense of urgency in our day because our day desperately needs the Lord Jesus Christ. Our generation needs the gospel. And who else will give it if not us? The second thing I want to look at is in verses 29 through 31. Raised unto gracious service. Verse 29. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. 
And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her. And she waited on them. There's a lot here that we can't afford to miss. First, we see that Simon's mother-in-law was the one who was sick. Verse 30, now, Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. It was his mother-in-law. Now, my mother-in-law is here this morning, and I love her dearly. But she's not my mother. There's a deeper connection that I have with my own mother. This was Simon's mother-in-law. It wasn't his own mother, but yet he still cared deeply for his mother-in-law. Simon cared deeply enough for his mother-in-law to take his concern for her to the one he believed could bring healing to her body. He wasn't indifferent toward her illness. He was not careless about her condition. Just because she was a little bit further removed from him than his very own household, he wasn't indifferent toward her suffering. Simon cared deeply about those who were around him. We should care for those who are around us. And not only that, but we should have a deep love for our whole family and for our neighbors, for our community, as Simon has here for his mother-in-law. He could have said, oh, it's just my mother-in-law. She's sick. She'll get over it. Oh, it's just the person down the road. I'm not really that concerned about it. They're They're not that close to me. I don't really have that much concern for them. But that wasn't Simon's response. Simon cared deeply about everyone who was around him because he served a God who cared deeply for him. When Simon was met with this Jesus Christ, with the God, with with Emmanuel, God with us, he met someone who cared about him more deeply than anyone else ever had. And if you have met with the Lord Jesus, if you have met with a friend who sticks closer than a brother, if you have met with this Jesus who laid down His life on your behalf, then you have met with someone who cares so deeply for you that words could not explain. You have met with somebody whose grace is far greater than any sermon could ever detail. If we were to have all of the preachers who have ever preached this glorious gospel stand up here on the stage with me and deliver their greatest sermon that they ever delivered, yet it would not get to the foothills of the Everest that is the love of God for you in Christ. And when Simon met with this Jesus and the deep love that Jesus had for him, it changed Simon. It changed how he looked at the people around him. And I would submit to us this morning that if something in you hasn't changed, then you haven't been saved. If something in you hasn't been overturned, if the sinfulness and the hatefulness that once rested in your heart has not been taken out and replaced with a love for those around you, you don't yet know Jesus. Here, Simon cares deeply for his mother-in-law. And second we see that Simon knows exactly who to go to. Look with me at verse 30. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever and immediately, immediately, again a sense of urgency, Simon immediately spoke to Jesus about her. City of Light has a song entitled Jesus Strong and Kind. Jesus said, if I am weak, I should come to Him. No one else can be my strength. I should come to Him. For the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus. Jesus, strong and kind. The psalmist says in Psalm 28 verse 7, The Lord 
is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him, and I am helped. Therefore my heart exults, and with my song I shall thank Him. And again in Psalm 89, verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, who is like you? O mighty Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. Psalm 18, verse 2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Jesus can be trusted. More than the doctors, more than the prognosis, more than what seems apparent, more than our fears, Jesus can be trusted. He moves in ways that are so unimaginably beyond our understanding that He alone could ever receive the honor and praise for them. Jesus can be trusted. And Simon knows that when he is faced with a trouble in life, he doesn't say, oh, I guess all I can do is go to Jesus. I guess it's my Hail Mary. It's my last option. I'll go to Jesus in prayer. I've tried everything else. I've tried to fix it on my own. I've tried to figure out what's going on with my mother-in-law on my own. I've tried it all on my own. I guess I'll go to Jesus. I don't have any other option. No, he immediately goes to Jesus. I wonder, how do you face difficulties in life? How do you face suffering in life? How do you face sins that you deal with in life? We all deal with them. Do you try to figure it out all on your own and then when you can't, you say, guess my last option is Jesus. Or do you say, I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus. Beloved, where else could we go but to the Lord? Simon understood that there was nobody to go to beyond and beside the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he immediately spoke to Jesus. And third, we see that after Jesus comes to Simon's mother-in-law and brings healing to her, she immediately jumps into service. Verse 31, And he, being Jesus, came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. Again, this is somebody who, like verse 28, after she was met with Jesus, after she was met with the healing power, the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, she was changed. She immediately jumped into service. She waited on them. We see a similar story in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. And by God's providence, we read John chapter 11 in our Sunday school lesson this morning, where we see of the story, the narrative of, of Lazarus dying. And then Jesus waits four days so that he makes sure that Lazarus is good and dead. That Lazarus, it says in, in the King James Version, behold, he stinketh. Jesus wanted to make sure that Lazarus was good and dead. That way when Jesus showed up on the scene, it was obvious that only Jesus could get the credit for the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And here in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, we see the aftermath of that rising from the dead. In John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, it says, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with them. Mary then took a pound of costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of, the, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor people, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. 
For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. What we see in this story is really four examples. Two of what not to do and two of what to do. Remember that in John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. His body was already decomposing. He had been in the grave for four days. Lazarus was dead. He wasn't just sick. He wasn't just asleep. He was D-E-A-D dead. And along came Jesus to raise him from the dead. And in John chapter 12, Jesus goes to Bethany where Lazarus' family lives. He's invited as a guest to dine at Mary and Martha's house who were Lazarus' sisters. And what happens? As they get to this scene, as Jesus walks into the house, we see two examples of what not to do. John chapter 12, verse 2. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Lazarus, the guy who had just been raised from the dead, was just sitting there. Jesus walks in. He doesn't get up and wash his feet, as was their custom, a sign of respect for a guest. He doesn't get up and say, here, Jesus, take my seat. He doesn't get up and hug him. Lazarus is just sitting there. And then, the second example of what not to do, we see in Judas. In John chapter 12, verse 4, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why wasn't this perfume sold and given to poor people? But it's said of Judas that he didn't truly care about the poor people. He didn't truly care about the people around him like Simon cared about the people around him, which was evidence that, that Judas was not a believer, that Judas had not been changed by Jesus. And Judas wasn't really caring about the poor people, saying, sell this, that way we can give all the money to the poor people. He was saying, sell it, that way you can put it in the offering plate that I oversee, and I'm going to take all the money for myself. Judas and Lazarus are both examples of what not to do when Jesus brings about healing in our life. But Mary and Martha... Verse 2, so they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. Verse 3, Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Both Martha and Mary are serving Jesus. They are both met with the power of Jesus and begin to serve him. Which one are you? Are you, like Mary and Martha, serving Jesus today? What is it that makes an old man serve Jesus and love Jesus more than he did when he was a younger, newly converted man? A long life of amazement at what God can do is what causes an older man to love Jesus more than he did when he was younger. A life of continued amazement at who God is and what God can do. A refusal to grow cold. A refusal to allow the things of this world to burden us and to bring us down. A refusal to listen to the false teaching of the world that everything's about health, wealth, and prosperity. A refusal to listen to all of the loud noises around us, but instead to set our focus on Jesus and say, He is my prize. 
That is what makes an older man love and serve Jesus more than he did when he was a younger man. A continued, long life of amazement at what God can do. I wonder this morning, if you've been walking with the Lord for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, are you still amazed at what God can do? We sing of amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Is it still amazing to you? Or are you just singing the lyrics because that's what's in our hymn? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. There's one final thing I want to look at here in verses 32 through 34. When evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. The third point is rightly understanding God's strategies. If we are honest with ourselves, sometimes it's hard to celebrate what God has done because we're waiting for Him to do the next thing. It's hard to look back in time to see what God has done then because we're waiting for God to act now. I found as a manager in various workplaces that one thing remains the same in every workplace. As a manager, if people don't see you working, you're not working. If people don't see the boss working, the boss isn't working. At least that's what people think. And sometimes we can fall into this trap thinking that if we don't see God working, God's not working. But that's not so. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 refers to faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Even if we can't see God working, we know that He's working. There was a story of Reverend Billy Graham. He was sitting in a room with scientists and physicists people who held more degrees and accolades than he had letters in his own name. And as they talked, he just observed. He listened to all that they had to say. This went on for several hours. And toward the end of their conversation, one of the scientists said, I understand how this works. I understand the science behind it. I understand physics and all of that. I understand the numbers. But what I don't understand is how it's all held together. And just then, Billy Graham, who had been silent throughout the whole rest of the conversation, leaned forward in his chair, and he said, Now to that one, I have the answer. You wonder how all of this is held together. You wonder how life is sustained. You wonder how the earth is kept in its rotation. You wonder how all the molecules, as fine and small as they are, are held together. I have the answer to that one. Jesus holds it all together. It's all because of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Maybe you're in the valley right now. Maybe you're waiting on God to move. Maybe you're asking God where He is and why He's not working, but He is always right on time. And what I've found from personal experience in my life is His time is the best time. And His plans are the best plans. I thought that I knew the timing that would be perfect for my own life. I thought that I knew the plans that would be perfect for my own life and it was all swept up from under me. And along came God and said, no, we're doing it my way. And oh, how much more glorious that was to do it God's way than my way. Here in verses 32 through 34, we see that the disciples, after they see Jesus heal some people, they begin to bring other people to Jesus. And maybe these were people who had been asking for answers their whole life. They had been wondering, why me? 
Why have I been dealt the hand that I've been dealt? Why have I been given this ailment, this illness? Why me? Why is it my loved one who's sick? Why is it my loved one who can never seem to catch a break? Why is it my bank account that always seems to not have enough at the end of the month? These are questions that we all have. But in verses 32 through 34, we see that Jesus shows up at the perfect time. And He brings about healing to all those to whom He would bring about healing. There's nobody like Jesus. There is nobody like Jesus. And the purpose of all of our suffering, the purpose of all of the healing that God should bring if He brings it, is to show Himself as matchless and worthy of our praise. And there will come a day that each and every one of us will pass from this world. There will come a day that as sure as we have to pay taxes, death will come knocking for each and every one of us. And then we will stand before the judgment throne of God to find whether we are in Him or not, whether we have trusted in Him or not, whether we have been able to sing, Jesus paid it all for me or not. And that is what truly matters. That day is what truly matters in light of eternity. And so, beloved, I would encourage you, pray for healing, pray for your loved ones. At the same time, trusting that if God does not bring the healing, it's not because He's failed. It's not because the ailment's too big for Him. It's because He's got better plans. And His plans are far better than anything that I could ever conjure up on my own. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for all that You have done in each and every life of those who sit here in this room this morning. There are those in this room who I know have stories of battles with cancer that they've been able to overcome. There are those in this room who have had ongoing battles with ailments and illnesses that you have overcome. And Father, we thank you for that. We celebrate the victories that we have here in this earth. And yet we know, Lord, that this is not all there is. That this is not it. And so we ask that you would help us through our suffering, through our ailments that we are inevitably going to face in this life, that you would help us to realize that it's all about Jesus. Help us to sing like the old song said, if I go or if I stay, I'm a winner either way. And help us to say with Paul, whether I'm here or whether I'm there, it's all about Jesus. Amen.